Amen. Please join me in a brief word of prayer before we open up God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak by your Holy Spirit through him to our hearts, that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word with joy, to respond with repentance, being renewed in our minds. Help us to hold fast to the promises in Scripture. We pray that you would hold us fast and keep us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 16. If you're using the Bible that we provided, can somebody using one of those Bibles tell me what page Psalm 16 is on? 453, 453. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, as Jonathan said earlier, we'd encourage you to take a copy of God's Word we've provided as a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself so that you can learn of the everlasting joy that he is preparing for those who trust in him. And we're gonna hear about that joy in our passage this morning. As always, I wanna encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it in a few moments. And I wanna encourage you to keep it open in front of you throughout our time because we're gonna be looking often at the passage in our time together. Uh, If you have your Bible open to Psalm 16, I want you to go ahead and look down with me at the text. You'll see a title, you may see a title in your Bible before the psalm that says, you will not abandon my soul. Uh, That wasn't there in the original text. It was added later as a way to describe one of the central aspects of Psalm 16. The first line of the original psalm is what we call the superscription. It's that smaller font that is right before the psalm. It says, a mictum of David. We're not exactly sure what a mictum is. Likely that it was a musical term since many of these psalms were sung uh, when the people of Israel gathered. But we do know who David is. David is King David, as in King David of Israel, as in King David of Israel who reigned from around 1000 B.C. to 970 B.C. That's 3,000 years ago. If you don't attend church very often, that fact may make this gathering seem like a supreme waste of your time. Like, these people have taken time out of their beautiful Sunday morning to get together and read a poem written by a Middle Eastern king who reigned 3,000 years ago? There seriously has to be something better we could be doing with our time. And if you're, if you're asking that question or thinking that question, I get it. I don't know of any other regular gatherings that take place where people are getting together to read the writings of ancient Assyrian kings or Persian kings or Egyptian kings. So why on earth would we spend our time this morning reading the 3,000-year-old writings of an Israelite king. But here's a surprising reason why we're gathering to read and consider Psalm 16 today. The surprising reason is because Psalm 16 teaches us that everlasting joy really does exist, and it shows us how we can have it. Now, I'm going to ask this question You don't have to respond out loud. 
and you don't have to raise your hand or do anything like that. But I do want you to seriously answer the question, and I'm, I, I'm pointing that out ahead of time because I want you to know I'm not being trite or cliched. I'm asking this question seriously. If you would like to experience true and everlasting joy, if you had the opportunity to experience true and everlasting joy, would you take it? Some people are going to answer out loud, yes. Well, the reason I ask that is because I have good news for you today. We're going to find out together that true and everlasting joy exists and you can have it. You can have it. Psalm 16 is going to show us how. So without further ado, I want you to follow along as I read Psalm 16 for us. This is God's word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you're taking notes, the main point of Psalm 16 for us today is this. Those who trust in the Lord will experience everlasting joy. Those who trust in the Lord will experience everlasting joy. What we're gonna do with the rest of our time is walk through the text again. I'm gonna explain it as we go. Then we're gonna consider how this passage is uh, points forward to and is fulfilled in the good news of Jesus Christ and in particular, his resurrection from the dead, which we're celebrating on this Easter Sunday. And then finally, we'll conclude with some applications from this text about how we should respond. So let's go ahead and take a look at the text together. Look back down there with me at the beginning of the psalm. I want you to notice first, David's trust in the Lord. Verses one to 10 of this psalm, in some way, shape, or form, are an expression of David's trust in God. I want you to notice in verse one, if you look down there with me, because he trusts God, he calls out to God for help. Preserve me, O God. Uh, we don't know exactly what was going on in David's life that he needed to be preserved from, 
Uh, When we read the accounts of his life in Scripture, we know that there were multiple periods of his life where he was constantly in danger, and this psalm could have been written during one of those times. But what we do know is that David trusted God enough to call on him for help. And one of the things I want you to notice about him calling on God for help, notice about his trust in God, it wasn't something that just popped up when he needed help. All right, think of situations where people are desperately in need of help, and so they make a deal with God. God, if you help me this one time, I'll follow you with the rest of my life. The most famous story I can think of is the story of Louis Zamperini in Unbroken when he was afloat at sea, drifting at sea. He made a deal with God. God, if you get me out of this, I will follow you, right? Situations like that, maybe not to that degree, maybe have happened in your life or the lives of other people, and poof, their, their problem disappears, but instead of following God, they, they go right back to what they were doing. That, that is not David. Look again in verse one. Preserve me, O God, for or because in you I take refuge. David has already put his trust in the Lord. David has already taken refuge in God. He is already wholeheartedly following him. And based on that relationship, he calls for help. And then his trust in God only becomes more and more evident as the psalm progresses. Look at verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He declares his trust in God and not God as some invisible power or force in the universe, some nameless and impersonal being who somehow, some way helps people on earth. No, he calls on God by name. I say to the Lord, that is Yahweh. I say to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, who led his people into the promised land of Canaan, who took up residence among his people in the tabernacle and shows them steadfast love and faithfulness. You, Yahweh, are my God. And because he trusts Yahweh as his God, He refuses to participate in the worship of false gods. Look at verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In the ancient Near East, there were numerous gods. You see their names recorded even in scripture. There were gods like Baal, who we even read about in the God Contest, or Moloch or Dagon, the list of gods in the ancient Near East was long and often the worship of those false gods involved drink offerings of blood. Animals or humans at times would be sacrificed and their blood would be poured out as an offering to the God to appease him or to seek his favor and then it was often consumed by the very people participating in that worship and David's not gonna participate in worshiping those gods. He's not even gonna take their names on his lips. He won't call out to them for help or rely on them for security or provision. He trusts in God. Now look again at verse five. We notice again his trust in God. The Lord, Yahweh, is my chosen portion and my cup. He's mixing metaphors here a bit, but his point is straightforward. He's saying the Lord is my everything. He is my portion. That word repeatedly refers to the allotments of land 
that God portioned out for the tribes of Israel when they entered the promised land. David, even though he's from the tribe of Judah, is including himself with the Levites, the tribe of the priests. The Levites never received a portion in the land because the Lord was to be their portion and their inheritance. They were to be wholeheartedly devoted to God, just like David is here. You could say David is a king, and he's kind of like a priest. At least he sees himself that way. The Lord is his portion and his cup. The cup often symbolized blessing and abundance. David doesn't seek blessing and abundance in the material things of this world, nor even in his role as ruler of a nation, but his source of blessing and abundance is God himself. Now notice how David's trust gets real. His trust in God isn't some cliche as though he just says it but doesn't actually believe it. It isn't a coffee cup, coffee cup slogan trust, right? He entirely entrusts himself to God's sovereign rule in his life. Look at verse five again at the end. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. The lot we're gonna explain it to modern people, was a lot like a, a dice, like rolling the dice, right? You and I may roll the dice, but scripture teaches the number that turns up is from the Lord. That's what David is saying. However my life shakes out is in God's hand. He holds my lot. In fact, the way my life has shaken out is in God's hand, and I, because of that, I have a beautiful inheritance regardless of what has been happening in my life. We just need to think about who it is that's saying that, that he has a beautiful inheritance. This is the same David who was repeatedly attacked by the previous king of Israel who tried to murder him over and over again. This is the same David who suffered attacks from the people he sought to lead. The same David whose own son turned against him and led a rebellion against his throne. And yet, because he trusts in God's good, sovereign, and wise ordering of all things, he can say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. A life full of pain and turmoil. Pleasant places. Because I know God sovereignly holds my lot. And he's working all things together for my good. You see how his trust in God is, is shot throughout this entire psalm? It's revealed in his plea for preservation. It's revealed in his confident declaration that Yahweh is his God, in his refusal to worship false gods, in his wholehearted devotion to God and his trust in God's sovereign rule over his life. And it's evident in his trust in God's wisdom. Look at verse seven. The Lord gives him counsel. That could be counsel through the scriptures David meditating on God's word, meditating on the law of God, or it could be hearing from God directly, which David heard from God directly from time to time. Whether it was God's written or spoken word, David entrusted himself to it. And again, in verse eight, he declares his trust in God alone. I have set the Lord always before me. Right? Yahweh is my goal. 
Yahweh is my guiding light. Yahweh is the one I am always looking to. And because of that, I know he is with me. And I will not be shaken. I want you to notice the turn in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Because David trusts in the Lord, and because the Lord is with him as a result, he's filled with joy, filled with a sense of security that nothing ultimately can shake him or harm him. Not only that, he's filled with joy because he knows that even if he dies, God will raise him from the dead. Look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In ancient Israel, Sheol was the place where the souls of the dead dwelled, conscious dead dwelled there. And David is saying, God is not gonna abandon him to that dark and gloomy place nor is he going to let his body decay or be corrupted. He's going to raise David from the dead. And the psalm reaches a climax in that final verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David knows that God's ways lead to life. That in God's presence, there is true joy. And not just for a moment, like the joys that we experience in this life, but pleasures forevermore. I mean, I don't know about you, if you read scripture, if you're familiar with the Bible, that that phrase has just lodged itself in my soul, and I am just looking forward finally to the fulfillment of it. Pleasures forevermore. But it's here we do run into a bit of a problem. It would seem that David's trust in God proved to be unwarranted. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that David did die. His soul was abandoned to Sheol. His body was corrupted. He died, and his body was buried, and his body underwent the corruption that all of us will experience when we die. We can go back to 1 Kings, and we can read about David's death, a death that we have no record of him ever being resurrected from. So it begs the question again. Why on earth are we here studying this psalm today? What could the 3,000-year-old writings of a Middle Eastern king possibly teach us about finding everlasting joy when that king is dead? Why should we listen to him? And why on earth am I up here saying that this psalm teaches us that those who trust in the Lord will experience everlasting joy? The reason is, The reason I'm saying that everlasting joy exists and this psalm shows us how we can have it is because this psalm isn't ultimately about David. Why do I say that? Because that is exactly 
what the Apostle Peter says in Acts 2, which we already heard read this morning. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says that David is speaking about Jesus in Psalm 16. He is not primarily speaking about himself. Listen again to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death For David says concerning him. For David, in Psalm 16, says concerning Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now listen to what Peter says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. We can go check it out. He is seeing corruption. He is in Sheol. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set on his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and in Psalm 16 spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses." Psalm 16 is not primarily about David, and it is not primarily about you and me. Psalm 16 is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who always took refuge in God, verse 1. Jesus is the one who knew that he had nothing good apart from God, verse 2. He's the one who delights in God's people, verse three. What does the author of Hebrews say? For he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's the one who never ran after false gods, verse four. He knew that God held his lot and was never discontent about what God was doing in his life, verses five and six. He's the one who was instructed by God's counsel, verse seven. The one who always set the Lord before him, verse eight. Just go back to David's life. Can we say that David always set the Lord before him? Think about what he did with Bathsheba and then what he did with Uriah. No, think about the census he later took. God brought judgment. He did not always set the Lord before him. One came after him who always set the Lord before him. His name is Jesus. And because Jesus knew God was with him, he was never shaken. Think about him sleeping in the boat in the storm. Not shaken. Why? Lord is with me. Doesn't matter what comes my way. And God also did not abandon his soul to Sheol. 
Even as he was nailed to the cross, he knew that he was secure in God because he perfectly trusted in God and and knew that God would not abandon his soul to Sheol. And God didn't abandon his soul to Sheol or let him see corruption. As Peter says, this Jesus God raised up. He is risen. He is risen. And after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and entered into the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore reserved for those who perfectly trust and perfectly obey God. I want you to see this. This is crucial. This everlasting joy is only for those who perfectly trust and obey God. I want you to look back with me at Psalm 15. One of the mistakes Christians make is thinking the Psalms are just a random collection of poems thrown into a book haphazardly that have no internal relationship to one another. Nothing could be further from the truth. We can't say exactly how every psalm fits together, but there is a clear trajectory to the psalms. David's ascent to the throne and the persecutions he suffered, his reign over the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel's descent into sin, their exile again, then you get to the last book of the psalms and a new David appears, the historical references to the King David all disappear Now it's a new David who ushers his people into a state of everlasting praise and joy. That's why the end of the Psalms end with praise, 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 praise. That's where we're going. That's where the new King David is going to take us. But the reason I'm pointing out Psalm 15 is there is an organic connection between Psalm 15 and Psalm 16. I want you to notice this connection. Psalm 15 is about who is allowed to dwell in God's presence. Verse one asks the question, O Lord, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Verse two gives the answer, he who walks blamelessly. He who is perfectly obedient. You can read about what perfect obedience is in the rest of Psalm 15. And I trust that if you read it, if you're honest with yourself, that you and I together can say, not me. I am not gonna dwell on God's holy hill. That's bad news for you and me. But I want you to notice something else. Look at the last line of Psalm 15. He who does these things, he who obeys perfectly, will never be moved. He who does these things will never be shaken. Now look at Psalm 16, verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I shall not be moved. The one who perfectly obeys is the one who is not shaken and who can dwell in the presence of God, Psalm 15. The one who is not shaken is the one who perfectly trusts God and because of his perfect trust is raised from the dead and enters into the presence of God where he experiences everlasting joy and pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. Psalm 15, Psalm 16 are fulfilled together in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the good news for you and me today is that Jesus 
after having entered into the everlasting joy reserved for those who perfectly trust God, did not keep that joy to himself, but shares it with all who would trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. If you would turn from your sin and put your trust in him, God will wipe away the record of your sins, past, present, and future. More than that, because you're saying to yourself, yeah, but I still don't perfectly obey. More than that, he will clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' perfect life through faith will be credited to your account by faith so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sins. He sees the perfect obedience of, your, of his son. And so you and I, together by faith, can enter into that same joy. We can now access his holy hill. We can now dwell in God's presence where before Jesus, we couldn't. Praise God for that. Because of that, we can dwell in God's presence, Psalm 15, and in God's presence, you will experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. Friends, do you, do you feel the weight of that, the, the good weight of that? Does your heart sing in response to that truth? It should. Because if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, then the promise of everlasting joy the promises of pleasures forevermore in the presence of God are yours today through faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, the dead will be raised. Everyone who has ever lived will rise from the dead to face judgment for how they've lived. Those who did not trust in Jesus will face eternal judgment for their sins, but those who've trusted in Jesus, being clothed in his righteousness, will enter into eternal life and everlasting joy. Do you remember what Jesus said he would say to those who trusted in him on that day? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. God is preparing a place for his people where we will dwell in his presence and there we will experience everlasting joy and pleasures forevermore. Uh, to my friends who are here who maybe don't understand themselves to be followers of Jesus, we are so glad you're here. I, I want to ask you a question. I just mean it, I mean it as kindly as possible. How is your search for joy going? Have you found joy? I'm sure there are things, even good things, that bring you joy in this life, but have you found everlasting joy, joy that can't be taken from you? Maybe you find joy in hobbies, uh, maybe like gardening or reading books or woodworking or exercise. Maybe you find joy in being with family, and friends. Maybe you find joy in your work. Maybe you find joy in things like money, the accumulation of material things, cars, clothes, jewelry, things like that, nice homes, or things like power. Maybe you find joy in self-expression, being your true self. I trust you realize deep down none of those things are joy, produce joy that will last in the end nor can they last 
Eventually, death brings an end to any and all joy. And this is one of the reasons David points out in verse four, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. In David's day, people worship false gods, right? Like we named Baal, Moloch, Dagon. They bowed down to statues and things like that. We might not do that. We still worship false gods. In our day, worshiping false gods looks like worshiping ourselves. We are the center of our universe. We, we do what we want. We're, we're our own God. Defining for ourselves what is right and wrong. Defining who we are over and against who God created us to be. We chase after things like money, power, sex, and self-expression. And the sad reality is none of those things will bring true joy. True joy comes not by chasing after those things, but by chasing after God and putting your trust in him. This is why the early church theologian from North Africa, Augustine, said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. If we go around chasing joy in things that weren't meant to provide it, we'll only find more restlessness and more sorrow. The sorrow multiplies. I want you to notice how starkly we see this in the psalm itself. Those who trust God experience refuge, delight, Pleasantness, beautiful inheritance, gladness, rejoicing, security, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, nine different expressions, while those who trust in themselves and chase after the gods of this age experience sorrow. Just one description, multiplying sorrows. And the reason the sorrows will multiply is because the things we chase after to find joy in apart from God will eventually be taken from us. Beauty will disappear. Money can be confiscated, lost by banks, lose value in a crash or be stolen, homes fall apart, hobbies eventually end when our bodies fail, Joy, uh, uh, loved ones will pass away, friends may turn on us or themselves will eventually die and all of that is followed by, by our own death and then judgment, multiplying sorrows. Those things were never meant to provide us true and everlasting joy. But that doesn't mean true joy doesn't exist. I want you to consider what C.S. Lewis said about the presence of unmet desires for joy. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, I can't find true joy. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The true and everlasting joy that we all seek can only be found in relationship with the eternal God, who is the fountain of all joy. Uh, to the teens in the room, we talk about this a lot. This world is going to hold out to you all sorts of places to try and find joy in, all sorts of things to try to find joy in. Find joy in being your true self. You do you. Be who your heart tells you to be. Find joy in stuff. Find joy in power. Find joy in prominence. And here's the thing. Those things will provide joy for a time. But that joy will be fleeting, and on the backside of it is sorrow. Remember C.S. Lewis's word. You were words. You were made for another world. And to chase the joys that only God can provide 
is to forfeit true and everlasting joy for fleeting joy and eternal sorrow. Don't be too easily pleased, kids. Make the Lord your all in all, and you will have joy now and forever. We see in the passage that God's people don't have to wait to experience this joy. We're given a foretaste of it now in this life. Notice again, David in verse nine. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Trusting in God produces joy now in the hearts of God's people. Joy because we have a strong fortress in Jesus Christ, a refuge in the storm. And because of his salvation of our souls, we will not be shaken ultimately. Whether you feel it subjectively or not, the truth is you won't be shaken. God will bless you and keep you through everything. We don't need to be shaken by the pain and sorrows and trials of life. Our joy will be battered and bruised in this world. Make no doubt about that. Don't get me wrong. We have numerous reasons for sorrow on this side of heaven, but having the path of life in Christ made known to us, we can be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. He's given us the joy of fellowship with other Christians in the local church. The saints in the land of verse three, alongside whom we're traveling together towards that heavenly city, that place of eternal joy and pleasures forevermore. And one of the things we're doing here today is encouraging one another to remember. Remember Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the joy that awaits us there. Don't trade that joy for temporal fleeting joys. We have the joy of knowing that our lives are in the hands of a good and sovereign God. Friends, God holds your lot if you have put your trust in him. The same God that we've been studying in Genesis, who sovereignly kept every single one of his promises to his people over the course of thousands of years, even using evil for good in their lives, is sovereignly holding your lot today. He has given you himself through the death and resurrection of his son so that regardless of the difficulties you might be facing now, you can say with David, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, life is difficult, but I have a beautiful inheritance. Whatever difficulties have come upon me, I know that God is working all things together for good for those who love him, so even this difficulty gives me reason for joy. And he's given you the spirit as a seal, the down payment of the inheritance that will be received in full when Jesus returns, through whom also he has given you the joy of his personal presence with you so that you can say with David, the Lord is at my right hand, therefore I need not be shaken. There is nothing you're facing right now, friends, that the Lord can't or won't bring you through because he has promised to bring you through death itself. The Lord Jesus, I hope you see, took your place on the path of death so that your feet could be set on the path of life and so that you might have the hope of eternal and everlasting joy awaiting you. That is our hope, friends. That is the certain hope guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The experience of joy now, tempered by the fall, and eternal and everlasting joy beyond our wildest imagination when God restores all things. It's a difficult joy to wrap your minds around. I can't do it perfectly. It's more like, wow, that's gonna be amazing, but I have no idea what it's gonna be like because I, I just frankly can't comprehend it, so I'm, I'm taking God on his word, which is a great attitude to have, but it is kind of abstract. You're gonna experience pleasures forevermore in heaven. 
Yes, amen. I, I have no clue what that means, honestly. I don't. And I, I really can't tell you. I know Paul says he was ushered up into heaven, and he was like, y'all, I can't even say it. Can't even say it. It's gonna be amazing, beyond your wildest imagination. That's, that, these are the descriptions we are left with. But one theologian tried to put words to what this joy is going to be like. And I wanna read to you this quote. It's a long quote, but I don't think it's been put any better. In this quote, he is talking about experiencing the love of God for all eternity. But because God is both love and the source of all joy, I have taken the liberty of replacing the word love with the word joy because it is pretty much teaching the exact same thing. And I hope this encourages you because it starts to perhaps give shape to what this joy will be like. Here we go. Seeing that God is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of joy. Seeing he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is a full and overflowing and an inexhaustible fountain of joy. Seeing he is an unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal source of joy. There, even in heaven, dwells that God from whom every stream of holy joy, yea, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. There dwells God the Father, and so the Son, who are united in infinitely dear and incomprehensible mutual joy. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of joy, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There dwells Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace and of Joy, who so desired that we experience his joy that he shed his blood and poured out his soul unto death for it. There dwells the Mediator, by whom all God's joy is expressed to the saints, by whom the fruits of it have been purchased, and through whom they are communicated, and through whom joy is imparted to the hearts of all the church. There Christ dwells in both his natures, his human and divine, sitting with the Father in the same throne. There is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine joy, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, all flows out or is breathed forth in joy and by whose immediate influence all holy joy is shed abroad in the hearts of all the church. There in heaven, this fountain of joy, this eternal three in one is set open without any obstacle to hinder or access it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of joy. There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of joy and delight, enough for all to drink at and to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of joy. I wonder if you've ever been guilty of thinking that heaven 
is going to be kind of boring. I mean, how can we worship God forever? Like, won't that, won't that get old? How are we going to sing to him forever? Won't that be boring? No, friends, it won't. Our experience of worship, our joy will increase infinitely because the God we're worshiping is infinite. We will never cease to exhaust the excellencies of his character or plumb all the depths of his glory. And so we will, in perpetuity for all eternity, have greater and greater reasons for joy and experience of joy and expressions of joy. Joy everlasting. Pleasures forevermore. That joy is held out to you today. Secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Will you turn and trust in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your power through which you raised your son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. We thank you for his ascension into heaven and for the glorious news that the gates of heaven have been flung open to all and that all who would turn and trust in him might be welcomed into your throne room to dwell in your presence forever and to have and possess and experience for all eternity everlasting joy and pleasures forevermore. Help us to behold him by faith today and to continue until the end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.